Jeremiah chapter 20. I'm going to read the first six verses. We'll start with that to kind of get a context, and and then we'll move on to the rest of the chapter. So starting in verse 1, when the priest Beshur, son of Emmer, the chief officer in the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Now in chapter 19, Jeremiah gave another prophecy of God that was, again, not well received. Verse 2, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. The next day, when Peshur released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord's name for you is not Peshur, but Magur Masibib. Now, Peshur meant fruitful on every side. Now his name has been changed to terror on every side. Continuing in verse 4, For this is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. With your own eyes, you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will hand all of Judah over to the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon and put them to the sword. I will hand over to their enemies all the wealth of this city, all its products, all its valuables, all the treasures of the kings of Judah. They will take it away as plunder and carry it off to Babylon. And you, Peshur, and all who live in your house will go into exile to Babylon. You will die and be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. Pray with me. Father, send your spirit now to help us. God, receive what you have for us. Help us to find ourselves in this chapter. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to be honest with you. God, and more importantly, help us to find you, God, in this chapter this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, when my wife and I, we came back from overseas, we were back in North Carolina, where we're from, and Christy, my wife, she, she and a friend of hers joined a, a fitness club, a, a fitness boot camp is what it was, and it's like a, an hour-long, intensive workout of all kind of crazy things, from you know, you're flipping truck tires to hitting things with sledgehammers, so a very, very interactive, crazy workout. Well, she joined this, and I watched her for the first week come home and walk around like someone had beaten her with a baseball bat, you know, just from the soreness of doing all these things. And, and a few weeks into it, she finally convinced me to join her. Um, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I got a bad back. Maybe I can strengthen my core. You know, those things could be helpful. But really, deep down, I thought, how bad could it be, right? I mean, I'll sweat a little bit. I'll be a little sore the next day. No big deal. So the, the, the workouts were in the afternoon, so I went, we went and did that, and beforehand we went and had lunch. We kind of have a, had a late lunch, and Christy did kind of her usual. She had a salad, something healthy, and I did my typical lunch. I had the French dip, you know, with a, you know, roast beef, French roll, au jus gravy, French fries on the side, smothered in ketchup, good stuff. So we went, and about 10 minutes into this boot camp, I thought to myself, what have I done? This is horrible. In my mind, it was torture. I kept thinking, I'm paying money for someone to do this to me. What am I thinking? And so I survived the hour-long workout, but I was so tired. I had Christy drive home, so I couldn't even lift my arms. And actually, on the way home, I had her pull over so that I could throw up. Um, (laughs) So I got to see my French dip in a whole new light. 
And so in my mind, that was torture. I, I survived, I continued, but it was torture in my mind. And, and we use that phrase a lot. You know, oh man, that movie, it was, it was torture to watch. Or, oh man, my neighbor, he's, he's learning how to play the trumpet. It's just torture to hear that. Well, here in chapter 20, Jeremiah, the prophet of God, is experienced torture in the real sense of the word. Right? He didn't ask for it. He didn't pay money for it. He doesn't see the end or, or, or the benefit from it. He was simply being faithful to God. And he's hated for it. So Peshur, the, the false prophet and priest, has him arrested, has him beaten, which probably more than likely is referred to a whip. He was beaten with the whip, so his back was busted open, and he was put in stocks. And most commentators believe that it wasn't just a matter of just kind of being held in one place, but it was actually a matter of twisting. It was twisting his body. He was twisted and contorted. He was tortured. But not only that, he was done, this was all done in public. It says the upper gate of Benjamin in the Lord's temple. It was done in public for all to see. Well, Jeremiah, after that night, is released, and we see that the message that he gives to Peshur, he basically tells him that you and your family and your friends, you will be taken away, and you will die in a foreign land. Now, reading on, verses 7 down to the rest of the chapter, we see a prayer of Jeremiah. And this is, a, I think, a gift to us. It's almost like a psalm. If you read the book of Psalms, this will be very familiar to you. But these are a gift, I think, to us because they give us a glimpse into the life of Jeremiah. We're able to observe the spiritual, psychological, emotional impact that his ministry is having on him. And so I'm going to read down verses 7 down to 13. And as I read, I want you to ask yourself three questions. One, what is Jeremiah's struggle What is he struggling with? What is he facing? Two, who is God? Where is he? And three, what is Jeremiah's response to God? So what is Jeremiah's struggle? Who is God? And what is Jeremiah's response to God? So start in verse 7. Follow along with me. This is Jeremiah's prayer. O Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Report him. Let's report him. All of my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Jeremiah's prayer. So, those three questions. One, first of all, what is Jeremiah's struggle? What is he facing? What are the things that are coming at him? And I think we can kind of divide it into two things. One is the outward struggle, the outward pain. And then there's the inward struggle, the inward pain. So first of all, what's the outward pain? What's coming at him? 
What's his external enemy? Well, I mean, it's pretty, pretty obvious. He's being persecuted for his faith. He spent the night in prison. He's tortured. Pashur, the false prophet and priest, has done this to him. It's almost like an arch enemy to Jeremiah. He's delivering God's message of judgment, and it is not well received. And so just imagine for a moment, you go to work, your place of work, or you go to your school, or your coffee shop, or wherever you kind of hang out with, with a lot of your friends, and every day you go there and you stand on a box, and you preach against the sins of our culture. I mean, think about the hot-button issues, the things that really get people stirred up. Think about that. Every day you go and you preach against those, and you say, these things are sin, and you need to repent, or you're going to hell. Every day you do that. Do you think you have a lot of people lining up to be your friend? Do you think you'd have anyone sitting with you at the lunch table? Would you still have a job? This was a taste of what it was like for Jeremiah every day. He had no friends. Verses 7 and 10 describe his situation. He's experiencing shame. He says, I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. I'm the blunt of every joke. I'm insulted and looked at with disdain. He's experiencing threats. He says, terror is on every side. My friends are waiting for me to slip, waiting for me to be deceived so that they can prevail over me and take revenge. He's experiencing rejection. As I hear many whispering terror on every side, let's report him, let's denounce him. Jeremiah is undergoing incredible hardships. So much so that he even faced the temptation just to stop speaking God's word. We see that in verses 8 and 9. It says, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Now, at one point, back in chapter 15, Jeremiah describes God's word as his joy. God's word was his delight. Now, he says, whenever I cry, I'm proclaiming violence and destruction. That's all I ever talk about. God's word has brought an insult and reproach. And so, Jeremiah is caught here, but he's compelled because he's compelled to be faithful to God, faithful to proclaim his word, but also compelled by a love for his people. And we see this all throughout Jeremiah, especially chapters 8 and 9. Let me read to you. At the end of chapter 8, Jeremiah says, My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician here? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people, to take up weeping and wailing. Jeremiah is a broken man. He's striving to be faithful to God's word and to convince his people to return to God. And in doing so, he is hated for it. The people despise the message, but it's the only message that offers them hope. 
There's no other way for them to be saved apart from turning to God. So Jeremiah must proclaim this message. So that's the, that's the outward struggle, the outward pain that's coming at him. What about the inward pain? What's the inward struggle? What's going on in Jeremiah's heart? What's his internal enemy? One Greek philosopher said, Man is not disturbed by events, but by the view he takes of them. We often face struggles that, that come at us from the outside, but those situations become exasperated by our interpretation or our understanding of them or how we view them. It's the effort to try to make sense of our pain that can be so overwhelming and exhausting. Jeremiah is feeling the weight of his external circumstances, but the real issue is how is Jeremiah struggling in the midst of that struggle? What is his experience of the problem? What is he believing or feeling or wanting? And we see the language there in verse 7. You deceived me, Lord. I am deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. This is very explicit language that borders on blasphemy. Earlier in chapter 15, Jeremiah asks God, God, will you, be, will you be a deceptive brook? Will you be a spring that fells? And now he flat out says, God, you deceived me. Now some commentators say that this word carries a connotation of seduction. God, you seduced me. You led me astray. He goes on to say that God overpowered him and prevailed. Again, very powerful and vivid language. One commentator translates the verse this way. You have seduced me, and I am seduced. You have raped me, and I am overcome. And there's a lot of debate over that translation, but that helps us catch some of the emotion that is behind his words. Now, is that true of God? Does he seduce us? Does he deceive us? Does he overpower us and have his way with us? The answer is no. But Jeremiah's experience is telling him otherwise. C.S. Lewis was no stranger to grief. He wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And in this book, it was basically his heart-wrenching reflection on the death of his wife, Joy. They married late in life, um, and had a wonderful but very short marriage. He, Lewis describes it as the best years of his life. Joy was diagnosed with bone cancer, a very painful form of cancer. Within a few short years, it would take her life. And in his book, he, he asks, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find a door slammed in your face. He goes on to say, I don't think I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Lewis experienced and Jeremiah experienced what I call the hyperbole of pain, right? Just the, the over-exaggeration, just the out-of-bounds thinking of trying to process what's going on. We see this in, in Job. We see this in the Psalms. Job in 626, he tells his friends, do you think you can reprove my words when the speech 
of a despairing man is wind. Don't be nitpicky with my words. Don't dissect my words. They're just, they're flowing out of my heart of pain. Psalm 31, David said, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried for your help. Basically, I said something that I knew was not true because I was confused. I was in pain. When a person experiences suffering, it's not uncommon for them to say things that are over the top or out of proportion with reality. They're set out of emotion, and they, they capture one's interpretation of the event. And so as you minister to someone who's suffering, you understand, you know, don't, don't get caught up in the minute details. Don't nitpick the words. Take time to notice how the person is experiencing that situation. What's the problem? What's the emotion behind the problem, rather? What are the interpretations of the situation? Start there. Pain is a very disorienting guest. We'll see more of that in just a moment. But you need to be patient with those who are suffering. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now notice, though, Jeremiah said these horrible things, but he, he went to God in prayer and said these things to God. He says, oh, Lord. And then he goes on with these things. He still went to God. He sought the Lord in prayer. This is the fight of faith. The reality that no matter what you may feel about God in the moment, you know that there is no one else to turn to. So Jeremiah cries out to God. He's honest with God. Now he knew that God had called him to preach the truth to a disobedient and stubborn people. He knew it would be hard, but I don't think he realized how bad it would get. So Jeremiah is trying to make sense out of his experience, and fortunately, he's rescued from his own despair. He's reminded of who God is, and so that leads us to our next question, who is God? That's a great question to ask in the midst of your suffering. As a matter of fact, that, that's, that's the most important question to ask in the midst of your suffering. Who is God? What does he say? What resources will he provide me in my time of need? What specifically does God reveal about himself in this situation? What is he like? What does he promise? What is he, how does he work? What has he done? What do I see him doing now? What will he do? Who is God? What do we see here in Jeremiah? Well, a few things. One is God is with him. We see that in verse 11. He says, but the Lord is with me. Earlier in chapter 15, God tells Jeremiah, I am with you to save you and deliver you. We have the promise that we are never alone. As believers, we're never alone. The prophet Isaiah has a wonderful promise from Isaiah chapter 43. He says this. God says, But thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers and though and they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored. I love you. That's the promise from Isaiah, verses 1 to 4. God is with us. Jeremiah was imprisoned and tortured alone, but he was not alone. You are not alone. So God is with Jeremiah, but also God is a mighty warrior. Again, verse 11, but the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. Talks about how he will cause his persecutors to stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. The ESV says, he is my dread warrior. What a name. Now, Jeremiah's enemies were dreadful in every sense of the word, but they were nothing compared to the Almighty God. He will be victorious. He is the one who delivers the needy from the wicked. So he's not just a God of good intentions who's by your side to pat you on the back. He is a God who is almighty, who is with you, to be victorious with you. Third thing, he says that God knows all things. Verse 12, he says, O Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind. God sees the hearts and the minds of everyone. Jeremiah 12, 3 says, But you, O Lord, you know me, you see me, and you test my heart towards you. God knows you. He is not deficient in his knowledge of you or your situation. He knows you, and he's not scared away. He doesn't flinch at your problems. A God who is present and mighty and all-knowing. This is a God who is with you, and this is a God who is with Jeremiah and gives him hope. So that leads us to the third question. What is Jeremiah's response to God? Well, he worships. Look at verse 13. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Worship comes when we see God as he is, when we stand in awe of him. When you see something amazing, you find yourself in awe of it, right? That's a form of worship. When your team scores a winning touchdown, you jump up and scream because you're happy, because you're saying, this is, this is worthy to celebrate. This is worthy to tell others about the next day. When your child takes her first steps or says her first words, you grab the video camera and you rejoice in that day because it's worthy to celebrate. It's worthy to put on Facebook and tell others about. When you get that promotion at work that you've been so hard for, that you so desperately need, you, you breathe a sigh of relief and you smile because it's worthy to celebrate. It's worthy to tell others about. These are all forms of worship. Every day we worship something based upon the value we attach to it. What is God's value to you? Based on who God is, how do you respond to him? How often are you in awe of God? Jeremiah worships God. He sees God as he is. But not only that, he trusts in God. We see that in, in verse 12, he says, toward the end of verse 12, For to you I have committed my cause. Worship draws us to God and, and invites us to, to lean in on him. 
We trust him. We rest in him. Jeremiah surrenders to God. He is resting on God's mercy. In the midst of your pain, you can trust God. You can trust that he can handle your circumstances. He can handle you. He's not afraid of your despair. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 9 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And in verse 9 it says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? This is a very helpful verse, but it's going to help us make sense out of the rest of the chapter. So Jeremiah responds to God in worship and, and trust and praises him, but that's not the end of Jeremiah's prayer. Okay, so let me read verse 13. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Now, let's move to verse 14 and finish the chapter. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb. With my mother as my grave, with her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? What just happened here? Right? In verse 13, he's praising God. And now he's he's cursing the day he was born. Now, Now, in those days, to curse God or to curse your parents was a capital offense. So Jeremiah stops just short of that. But didn't he just thrust himself upon the Lord? Didn't he just... Lift up praises to God? Didn't he just commit his cause to God? Didn't he just talk about how God delivers the needy from the hands of the wicked? I mean, is he struggling with schizophrenia? Is he struggling with bipolar? I mean, the, I mean these are all you know, theories that people have had as they've tried to make sense of this passage. I'm not being glib. Or is this, is this a misprint? Do we get the order mixed up in the chapter? This seems illogical. How can he praise God in verse 13 and then curse the day he was born in verse 14? And this is where I think the logic of pain comes into play. Here is a man who is blatantly honest about his struggle in life. He is looking to God, praying to God, finding hope in God, and still he finds it easy to be consumed with his struggle and forget God. He is under the eclipse of pain. These last verses help us understand something really important about the Christian life. Even as we put our trust in God and recognize his power and plan in our lives and our circumstances, it doesn't mean the sting of life is completely taken away. It doesn't make us immune to the effects of living in a broken and twisted world. We don't come a bunch of stoic robots that have no emotions, untouched by this world. Jeremiah paints this picture of the logic of pain. In our suffering, it is easy 
to forget God. It's easy to forget our theological bearings, no matter how good they are, and fall back into despair. Jeremiah 17, 9 that I read earlier, it talks about the wickedness of the human heart and its ability to deceive. Now, as believers, we have a redeemed heart. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us. So some of that is pushed back, but yet we still can fall prey to that deception. And when you combine that with painful life circumstances, confusion is usually not far behind. Jeremiah's prayer ends in darkness. And I'm thankful for that. Because I have had days that have ended in darkness. And if you're honest, you have to. Jeremiah chapter 20 normalizes that experience. We've all been there. After all your effort, the day ends, and that relationship you so long for is yet to be restored. After all your prayers and medical interventions, the day ends, and the cancer is still there. After multiple conversations and pleadings, the day ends, and your child is still walking far from the Lord. After all your weeping and seeking God, the day ends and the one that you love is still gone. We all know the experience of having a day that ends in darkness. We know the experience. We know what it is to have our prayers not have a happy ending. So what do we do with that? Is there any hope? We cry out to God. We seek him. We commit our cause to him. We surrender. We follow after him. We fight the fight of faith. We trust him. We trust in who he is. And by his grace, we take baby steps. Sometimes it feels like two steps forward, maybe one step back. But we take the steps. Jeremiah's prayer ends in darkness. The prophet and priest to God's people ends his prayer overwhelmed with the prospect of living to see trouble and sorrow and to spend his days in shame. Thankfully, as we continue the book of Jeremiah, we see that it doesn't end here. His ministry continues. God's faithfulness sustains him. He is finally able to give a message of hope. In Jeremiah 31, he talks about the new covenant, a covenant that would be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Jesus would come as a prophet and priest like Jeremiah. He, too, would bring a message of God to a rebellious people. He, too, would see trouble and sorrow, and he would endure the ultimate shame, the shame of dying naked on a cross for his enemies. And on that cross, he too would have a prayer that ends in darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The promise that we have in the gospel that God is with us is not a blessing that Jesus had that day. He gave it up for us. 
He took our sin and our shame upon his shoulders and he died with them. Now Jesus knew the reason he was there. He knew that in three days he would rise from the dead, yet in that moment he was in the eclipse of pain, our pain. The Bible teaches us that God, he doesn't love us from afar. He doesn't lob inspirational quotes at us from a distance. No. He comes near. He entered into our misery. Hebrews 4 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we have the confidence and the boldness to approach him to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. What hope does the gospel offer us in our pain? It offers us a God who knows us, who knows our struggle, a God who says to us, pain and suffering will not have the last word. A God who is mighty, who will make things right. You will suffer. You will grieve but you will do so with hope. This God is calling you this morning, this mighty warrior that you so desperately need, the one who knows you and is with you. Come to him. Now, if you're a little shaky, maybe a little confused, maybe not sure where you're at spiritually, I want to invite you. Come to this Jesus. Put your trust in him. Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you received forgiveness of your sins? I'll be in the back. Other pastors will be in the back. Don't hesitate to ask us to get more information. Some of you are in the eclipse of pain right now. And I say to you as well, don't hesitate to come to us. Let us pray with you. Maybe weep with you. Don't think for a moment that you have to have it all together, right? You are a mess. I am a mess. We're all a mess. That's why we need Jesus, the one who's not afraid of the mess, the one who enters into our mess and gives us hope. That hope is here for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for, for chapter 20 of Jeremiah. As hard as it is to get our minds around that, God, we, we find ourselves drawn to it because we, we all can relate. Either we have, we, we are, now we can, or we will. We've been there in the eclipse of pain. And so, Father, I pray for, God, your grace and your mercy to be applied to each heart. God, that you will meet every person where they're at. God, the questions that maybe are swirling around in their minds, God, that you will just still their hearts and let them to, lead them just to rest in you, to know who you are. God, the question of why is often elusive, and usually it's not very helpful to find the answer, but Father, knowing who you are, God, is usually the most helpful thing that we can find. So Father, I pray that show us who you are this morning. Draw us into worship. Draw us in to trust you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.